Hello and welcome to the recording of my conversation with Cynthia Miller-Idris on her research on far-right extremism in the world today. My name is Marina Henke. I'm a professor of international relations at the Hurdy School and the director of the Center for International Security. The event was part of our speaker series, Challenges in International Security, hosted by our center in Berlin and took place on March 15th, 2021. During the event, Cynthia explained how and why so many people are increasingly attracted to violent far-right movements in the United States, Europe, and the rest of the world. If you enjoy this recording, please let us know and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome, everyone, to the fourth event in our speaker series at the Hurdy Center for International Security, Challenges in International Security. The purpose, as many of you know, of the speaker series that we just created last year is quite unique. We want to stimulate strategic thinking among our Hurdy students and the wider audience. As a result, all our invited speakers tackle big questions in the field of international affairs at the so-called grand strategic level. How can Germany and Europe preserve peace and prosperity in the coming decades? How should Germany and Europe think about and shape its relationship with the most critical states in international politics, such as the United States, China, and Russia? And what domestic challenges does Germany and Europe face going forward that could paralyze the policymaking process and thus severely affect German and European power and influence in the world? One of these challenges is certainly far right wing extremism, which is dangerously on the rise in Germany, Europe, the United States and many other places around the world. To better understand how so many people are being radicalized and why they're increasingly attracted to these violent movements, we invited today Professor Cynthia Miller-Idris, who is a world expert on this topic. So let me briefly introduce Cynthia. Cynthia is a professor at the American University in Washington, D.C. She directs the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab. Her research focuses on white supremacist and far-right extremism, and she has authored many articles and books on this topic, most importantly, Blood and Culture, Youth, Right-Wing Extremism, and National Belonging in Contemporary Germany, which came out in 2009. The Extreme Gone Mainstream, Commercialization and Far-Right Youth Culture in Germany, which came out in 2018, and most recently, Hate in the Homeland, The New Global Far-Right, which she published last year, 2020, with Princeton University Press. So as you can tell, Cynthia is not only an expert in far-right extremism, but she also worked a lot in Germany which makes her, of course, very, very special to us here at the Herder School and to our audience tonight. So, Cynthia, we're absolutely delighted to have you. Without further ado, Cynthia, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Marina. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I'm so delighted to have this format where I actually will be able to see some faces and, and hear some voices in the Q&A as well. Um, and it's such an honor to be here, particularly, as Marina said, because Berlin itself is a city very close to my heart, my favorite city, and where my career began, really, through ethnographic qualitative research in vocational schools. 
Um, so I became an accidental expert on far-right youth by studying the vocational system and by having done years of research in construction trades where teachers were struggling with a resurgent far-right uh, some 20, 25 years ago when I first started doing dissertation research. Um, so that began my long love affair with, uh, with uh, the, the German school system um, and with German responses to resurgent far-right extremism, which I've written about widely um, as a model for, for how the rest of the world should be thinking about it. Of course, knowing that uh, it's not perfect either, um, I write a lot with my colleague Daniel Kohler about lessons learned on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that. But today I'm primarily going to talk about my books. So this new book came about because I had turned in my last book, The Extreme Gone Mainstream, just two months before Charlottesville happened in the U.S. in 2017. And suddenly I was, and that book had really traced the aesthetic transformation of far-right extremism among youth in Europe, in Germany, in Eastern Europe, and Russia, looking at the emergence of for-profit brands that were selling clothing laced with codes and symbols um, and how that had kind of transformed the aesthetics of the scene and how schools were responding to it. And so all of a sudden I was asked to explain far-right youth culture, what are memes, how do they work, what does the iconography of clothing have to do with this, why did all those young men show up wearing khakis and polo shirts and how does that play into the transformations in far-right growth and the mainstreaming. While I was doing that, I just was asked to explain it so often that I came to, to feel that some of the, not all of the right questions were being asked, let's just say. So I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, but just to make sure we're all on the same page, I should say that I use the term far right to refer to a spectrum of beliefs, ideologies, groups, it's a, it's a terrible term. I don't like it. I call it the best bad term that we have available. I may eventually find a better term, I hope, but um, it's one of the reasons I don't like the term is because it's not in, there's no agreement universally across borders. I find it the best of the bunch, but you know, Germany, as you know, uses right-wing extremism and right-wing radicalism or lex extremismus. Uh, in the US, we don't even have the same terminology in use in the, across agencies. So some agencies are using racially and ethnically motivated violent extremism or REMV as the State Department and the Department of Justice. Others use white supremacist extremism or domestic violent extremism as Biden's administration and Homeland Security are using. And the UN uses still different language. So, and a lot of talks now are inviting me using the term far right as well, which kind of captures all of that. The reason why I use it is because it's the biggest umbrella to capture this spectrum that includes both the anti-government side of things, as well as the male supremacist incel type violence and the white supremacist fringe, along with some groups like accelerationists who are aiming for violence. It includes at, at least some combination of exclusionary and dehumanizing beliefs and inferiority and superiority, typically anti-democratic um, practices and beliefs, things like no commitment to protect minority rights, framing of existential threats, the use of conspiracy theories, which again are not exclusively limited to the right, but certain kinds of conspiracy theories like the Great Replacement, along with violent apocalyptic fantasies about the restoration to a white civilization after some sort of end times. So the, most of the other terms that are in play do not you know, capture, like they only capture the white supremacist part of this and not the anti-government uh, side or the militias um, in the US, for example. So I, I do use the term far right with the acknowledgement that it's not the best. I won't go into the drivers here very much, but leave this here in case people are interested. What I do want to say is that 
what we're seeing here is a combination of kind of precariousness and entitlement, meaning that precariousness is the sense that something could be taken away from you. So it's not the, the most disenfranchised who tend to be the most vulnerable to the propaganda, but those who are a rung above that. So one study in Germany that I often cite showed that, for example, you know, you're not more likely to join the far right or become part of the far right if you are unemployed, but you are more likely if you grew up in a household with an unemployed parent. So it's the sense that you could lose something. It could be status, it could be income, it could be uh, majority white society. And that makes people vulnerable, particularly if you also have a sense of entitlement to that thing. So, you know, it's something could be taken away to which you feel entitled and given away to someone else who doesn't deserve it. And we see that language in the US around second amendment rights and armed protests around guns that some elites, Democrats are gonna come take guns. We see that around white supremacist extremist rhetoric about immigrant invasions. And we see that very clearly with the stop the steal rhetoric around the January 6th insurrection, this idea that something will be taken away to which you are entitled and given away to someone else who doesn't deserve it. When we look globally at the far right, there have been increases over the last several years, 250% increases now representing the vast majority of deaths in terror. The largest number do happen in the States. So about half of far right terror incidents for the last couple of decades and, and just about half of the deaths happen in the US. Of course, Germany, the UK, France, New Zealand, because of the Christchurch incident are also up there um, as well. In October 2020, shortly before the election, the US Department of Homeland Security did issue its annual threat assessment report, which for the first time said that uh, domestic violent extremists and specifically white supremacist extremists are now the most lethal and persistent threat in the homeland. Uh, and that came after several other countries, including Germany, had made the same sort of acknowledgement. One thing I want to say, and this gets into the questions that I take up in this book, is that the vast majority of terrorist violence, and including and, and extremist violence as well, comes not from members who are people who are card-carrying members of groups, but individuals who may be motivated by that ideology, but yet not tied to groups. So globally, it's about 13%. The arrests so far on January 6th at the US Capitol, it's also about 13 to 15%, depending on the, the number of the different data sets count it slightly differently, are by members who are formally tied to groups. Then there's some additional percentage who came who follow people, like for example, on, on uh, uh, January 6th, people who traveled with a member of a group, but still large numbers, large percentage of incidents are from unaffiliated individuals, what we call, you know, self-radicalized individuals. They may be exposed to groups propaganda, but they are not, they're, it's not quite the same thing as being a card-carrying member of a group. So one of the things that I discovered after, uh, after Charlottesville and after being asked to explain and ultimately testifying before Congress, you know, a lot of different kinds of explaining to different groups about what was happening with far-right youth globally is that people tended to be asking the same two sets of questions. One was, how are groups organizing? What are the tactics and strategies? What are their communication plans? And also how people are made more vulnerable to it. What's happening cognitively inside people's heads? And I started feeling like, what if we asked a different set of questions about where and when people encounter extremist ideas and how geographies of hate play a role? So part of my book is about these geographies of belonging and exclusion. I'm not going to talk about that today, the rest of the time, but I signal it just to say I'm happy to come back to it 
it is a section, a chapter of the book about um, the role that geography plays, that, that place matters um, more than we maybe think it does, even in the online context. But the part that I want to talk about today is the part about youth, which is really how we also need to ask where people encounter ideas in mainstream spaces and places, both physically and virtually. And the way in which that opens up our understanding, not just to look at the hardcore of extremist groups, but also to look at the peripheries of the margins and understand how people make their way in. This changes our ideas about radicalization a little bit. Instead of thinking about it in a linear, completely linear way, you start to see it as something where young people in particular may go in and out of extremist scenes or encounters with extremist material on and off, sometimes over a period of years before they actually fully commit. So when I talk about radicalization, essentially, I just want to clarify that what I mean, I use essentially Jan Berger's definition about it's a process of coming to accept an ideology that pits us versus them in very dire threat kind of terminology, existentially at threat, so that one's life or future or family is really their own survival is threatened. We have seen over the last decade or more rapid transformations and where youth and adults and how they're radicalizing in what kinds of places. And so that's what I'm gonna talk about for the rest of my time here. First, it's more bottom up, organically evolving kinds of symbols more driven by youth themselves. There's a changing set of places and spaces and ways that youth share symbols, particularly through the use of wit and humor, sarcasm, coding. And finally, real changes in where radicalization happens. So not just in kind of backwoods militias or Aryan Brotherhood prison gangs or very tight networks of neo-Nazi units, but also in, in a wide variety of new spaces and places that I'll talk about. So in the book, I take chapter cases. I selected cases in the mixed martial arts and college campuses and cooking and fashion to look at different ways that mainstream spaces and places are being used by far right individuals and groups and ideological movements really to develop financial and culture, cultural and intellectual and physical capacity or capital for the future of these movements. And one of the ways that happens that I talk about a lot in the book that I just mentioned is through the weaponization of humor. And so what you see, it started as t-shirts essentially uh, in the in the late 1990s, early 2000s, when you began to see the creation of t-shirts and, and whole brands emerging using coded symbols with humor and wit in ways that position the far right itself as countercultural. So this t-shirt here, so we're not radical, we're just early. Anyone who doesn't get it just can't take the joke. It positioned the far right as the edgy, provocative, outside of the norm one, where against the serious and boring mainstream. So the triggered snowflakes who, who can't take the joke are the ones that are really the boring adults and the countercultural that's edgy and pushing the limits of things are, are the ones that um, were attractive, you know, and, and it positioned this in a very attractive way to youth. What we began to see though is uh, as memes emerged online, so not just t-shirt iconography, but then memes, it didn't take a producer who used to have to research and create the codes and sell the t-shirts and, and market them online or, or in a storefront. Now anybody can do it, right? So, I mean, of course you could create your own screen printed t-shirts in the back of your car before, but one of the things that changed with the emergence of new brands was the high quality of the materials and the brands. And that began to matter less with the memes. Anybody could do it. So Pepe the Frog, become, you know, totally unrelated to the far right cartoon character gets co-opted by pairing him 
with a variety of different symbols of hate. And then through a really complicated set of evolutions that happen, that can only really be explained through understanding youth culture, he evolves into, someone discovers because K-E-K was being used to, re to refer to online laughter instead of LOL, again, for complicated reasons related to online gaming. Someone discovered that there is an Egyptian god of the frogs called Kek. And they, so they, someone created this idea that there was a fantastical mythical land called the Republic of Kekistan and Lord Kek was their ruler, right? All sounds kind of ridiculous online joke created by young people, except then these flags actually start showing up. So you have them here at Charlottesville. You have it um, at a demo in, uh, in Brazil. It's showing up uh, in images in Australia. And then in the bottom here, the bottom and on the right, that's at the US Capitol on January 6th. So that flag of Kekistan that started as a joke by young people online becomes a part of offline violent action. And it's this t-shirt here, you see this kind of constant reference to the idea of meme wars or a meme war veteran. It's this connection between the use of symbols and coding in youth culture online and the mobilization of offline violence. Another good example of that, also very present in the US right now is the Boogaloo Boys, which again, extremely difficult to explain why this coded, you know, so the, the, the word Boogaloo became, and it was a joke used by teenagers to refer to the second of something because it was used, it was the second, it was a sequel, a bad movie sequel in the 1980s. And someone then started using it to refer to a second civil war, coming civil war in the U.S., and it gets adopted, right? So you start calling, they start calling themselves a meme-based insurgency. So they, it gets attached to a concept, Boogaloo Boys, right? You start seeing them show up in 2019 into 2000, early 2020 at armed protests. As they start facing more scrutiny, they start using sound-alike names like Big Igloo or Big Luau. And that leads to the wearing of Hawaiian shirts, right? The big luau also popular because as you see in the upper central image, luau's feature pig roasts and pig is a slur for law enforcement. You see that with the hat, the ATF hat. And so it was also an indirect threat to law enforcement to wear those Hawaiian shirts at these protests. You also see in that central image, the meme-based insurgency patch, the wearing of revolutionary kind of symbols there. So it's a it's again a code for civil war that starts as a joke among teenagers online. And then last year, two people, you know, were killed uh, ostensibly by members of these Boogaloo type groups as part of the anti-government uh, deaths that happened last year over the summer. And so, and again, you're seeing them show up not so much as a defined groups again, which gets complicated but as a concept, it's like a mobilizing concept. It's applied like a hashtag to other groups. So you'll see a Proud Boys post with a hashtag Boogaloo, which means call to civil war. So it's a call to insurrection, to insurgency, to civil war, to anti-government sentiment that moves from a joke online by teenagers into offline violence. So I won't go into great depth here, but those two examples are just to show you this, it's really this third category, the weaponization of humor, but there are at least three other ways that, and I trace them in the sixth chapter of my book where I talk about how the online ecosystems and the variety of them kind of underpin all of this. Not only are there new physical spaces and places, but what we're seeing is that online ecosystem is used both to expose people to new ideas that are extremist within the mainstream, 
but also to amplify them through live streaming, for example, as we saw in horrific Christchurch attack live streaming, but also the sharing of other videos of memes of manifestos. We see through the use of algorithms and recommendation systems, the creation of things like rabbit holes um, that allow people to kind of stumble into ever more extreme ideas inadvertently through searches. So Dylan Roof, who killed nine people in a Charleston church a few years ago, it has repeatedly said in interviews and in this FBI interview that his radicalization process started when he searched for crime statistics in the U.S. and was taken. His first hit was a white supremacist extremist website, which led him down a pathway that he never came back from. You know, it's not to say that people are not responsible for the choices they make, but when recommendation systems, the same way that some you get recommended a T-shirt because someone else has bought a T-shirt like yours, then recommends ever more salacious content on YouTube so that you're gradually led into more extreme video watching because others have watched videos like that. That's what I mean by the algorithms and recommendation systems playing a role. And finally, the online system is used to build resources and training. There's a lot of sharing of tactics, even across platforms. So we have white supremacist extremist groups regularly sharing Islamic State and Al-Qaeda material, bomb-making material, and ISIS propaganda, for example, both as a way to copy, but also as a way to incite anger and hatred. And so there's that kind of reciprocal uh, radicalization that happens as well. I promised that I would stop early, so I'm just going to close with something about risk and resilience. So this book, in many ways, was like an agenda-setting book for the lab that I now run called Peril, the Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, we are, among other things, testing a variety of different interventions to try to interrupt and prevent. So one of the things we did right away once um, the pandemic hit was partner with the Southern Poverty Law Center to create a series of toolkits and guides for practitioners and frontline responders. So our first one was for parents and caregivers. We are now coming out with versions for teachers, for mental health professionals, and for coaches all driven by extensive focus groups with those practitioner communities. And with the parents and caregivers one, we just finished a, in fact, I just got it this morning, uh, around 7.30 in the morning here, the final report from our senior researcher of an impact study of that guide, which is with 755 adults, almost all of whom were parents, so 745 were parents, who read the guide and then answered a series of questions before and after and pre-test and post-test. And one of the things that was really interesting about those findings, which will be public um, pretty soon in the next week or two, not only did it improve everybody's awareness, the more minutes they spent reading the guide, the better knowledge they acquired, right? So not just knowledge, but also feeling more empowered to intervene with children in their lives who might be exposed. So we're hoping to, that through the lab, we can be providing evidence back. I will just say, we also have a variety of other projects on media literacy, and have I have other thoughts I can recommend here on what else needs to happen around kind of local and regional capacity building, what role the federal government might play, although I'm skeptical uh, on the federal government response, and as well as the role of the tech sector and the tech world. And I will stop there. Cynthia, this was extremely informative. So I'm really interested in kind of a comparative view. So you mentioned you first got into studying radicalization 
in the late 1990s in Germany, where, you know, like in these uh, kind of construction worker um, school setting, where you saw the first ones, you know, showing up with Springerstiefel and, you know, like shaved heads and so forth. So if you compare just the recruitment and the kind of the first getting in touch with those ideas back in the 1990s, late 1990s, early 2000s, and today, um, could you just describe the differences? What was the more traditional way back then? Now, you know, like, of course, we know um, online media are uh, way more important. And what does this, you know, how does this in effect actually those who, who become um, members of these organizations and activists? Yeah, great question. I mean, back back uh, before the internet, you'd say, so, or before the internet had created these variety of different ecosystems, the groups were central, they were essential. And so you really had to have membership in a group and you, or you met, you became involved in it by meeting others in the group or by getting engaged with the subcultural systems that surrounded that group. So typically through the music scene, so the hardcore right-wing music scene where there were bands and tours and concerts and they were handing out CDs in schoolyards, for example, but also through the printing of literally of newsletters that were and meetings that were held by those groups. So there were newsletters that got mailed out. There were communication structures that like phone trees that were done through groups, for example. But there was, unless somebody stumbled on written material, or maybe through the lyrics of music really was the way, the main way that you could spread the ideology without being in a group. Um, it really had to be done through neighborhoods and through close contact with other individuals and through membership in groups. And here today, I think the, the vast minority of that work happens through joining and, and membership in groups. In fact, essentially almost all of the terrorist attacks that we've had in the States have been not from many, you know, people who are not members of groups, El Paso, Pittsburgh, um, you know, they're inspired by the ideology that, and the propaganda that groups put out, but they're not actually engaging with anybody in a group or consider themselves a member of those groups. And that's even Oklahoma City also. So the ideology is consistent with it, but, but they can be exposed to it online, interact with other individuals online, and then radicalize that way. That's one aspect. The other is that the gateways are really much broader. So one of the things we see with young people is that they are much more likely to become kind of gradually and accidentally exposed instead of seeking it out as a destination. So they go spend time on an Im image board sharing site because they're interested in um, funny memes or, you know, jo a joke site or they're sharing, you know, they start to download and share memes back and forth with friends and those memes have misogynistic content. And that content includes things that are really policing and controlling the sexuality of women. And then gradually that leads them to be on forums that are telling them about, you know, the real problem with this world is feminism. And then that leads them to into another set of recommendations. They find these, these incel communities and that are expressing the real solution should be, you know, violence against women. We're never going to, you know, date you. And, um, and then that leads to, you know, someone attacking a a sorority out in California or a yoga studio in Florida for the examples recently in the US. So you have the same thing with the kind of dehumanizing content and the, and the anti-Semitic content. A lot of Holocaust denial memes and a lot of Holocaust minimization memes, for example, circulate in those spaces and become a kind of entryway. So we will, you know, I had a journalist tell me once while we were having this conversation that 
he heard his uh, son and a friend putting a pizza into the oven and then making a terrible joke about the Holocaust, which I will not repeat. Um, and he didn't know what to do. And he eventually went in and asked them and he said, where did you hear that? And why would you say that? And they said, oh, dad, it's a joke. Everybody says it, you know, and how could you think that everybody says it? it's just a joke. It's just funny, but it's the dehumanization that comes with that without, without realizing that joke is so horrible, without maybe having the history or the knowledge because so many Americans don't, so many Americans, young people don't get that history. But that leads to the sharing of other provocative memes and jokes that horrify, that are intended to provoke. And that leads to you know, more dehumanization and more interaction in those spaces. So even when it's not coming from a group per se as propaganda, because of the widespread circulation of that kind of material and the awfulness that's out there and the trolling and the harassment kinds of cultures that they also participate in, those kinds of communities can can lead to either sympathy or active engagement with extremist materials and ideas. As a concluding question, I would like to know, so your, the title of your latest book is Hate in the Homeland, the New Global Far Right. So how united is actually the far right? And do you see, for example, repercussions from January 6th already galvanizing movements in Europe? What's the connection to bring as well, like a lot of the information that you provided on the US context to bring it a little bit back to Europe? Yeah. What type of links, what type of reactions, counter reactions do you see across the Atlantic? We have seen definitely across, not, not universally, but we have seen reactions across the continent and in Eastern Europe in particular, Uh, to January 6th that are celebrations, that are saying that this was a courageous revolutionary act, that see it as a extension of what had been maybe a practice run of the parliament and the attack on the parliament in Germany in August of 2020. You know, I'm not sure, I'm not so sure of that uh, articulation of whether that was really seen in the same way, but, you know, it was, it is discussed online like that. Um, we also see concern across Europe articulated in online spaces among white supremacists and far-right extremists that what happened on January 6th in the States will lead to more surveillance and monitoring uh, so that there'll be a clamp down. And so concerns about that kind of clamp down happening. Um, and, but mostly it's a celebration. I mean, I think the, the overarching um, uh, tone is that this was a successful and courageous revolutionary act. And Uh, a model for how a small organized group of militants can use the backdrop of a mobilized mob to, to take action in ways that they couldn't have done before. So it's this seen as a successful coalition building moment. I think, you know, what we have been seeing globally is that there is a lot of learning and sharing and live streaming and inspiration across the far right from each other. And across the Atlantic and particularly across Europe has been really decent information sharing on the law enforcement side and on the security and the intelligence side, um, but less learning and sharing, particularly across the Atlantic, but also within Europe, on the intervention side. I think like each country has sort of been developing their own totally different strategies for trying to intervene and prevent. And what I would say is we need far more engagement on the policy side in thinking about what's needed in terms of evidence of what works, what kinds of counter narrative and de-radicalization programs don't work and perhaps fail or make things worse? And how can we better communicate those lessons across borders so that 
every country is not reinventing the wheel in each place, but starts to see this as not just a shared problem, but a shared set of solutions. And I think that hasn't happened really at all, uh, or not very much. There's maybe a few reports, but for the most part, interventions are in-house, you know, each country, because they're different languages as well, of course. Uh, but I would like to see a lot more, if we have that infrastructure there so that Europol can get together and do their trainings and uh, have shared information, why aren't we having the same thing with teachers and with youth workers and counselors and parents, which really just never happens. And so that's the kind of thing I would love to see more of uh, in the years to come. Thank you so much, so. Cynthia. This was a fascinating presentation and discussion on a topic that is, of course, extremely important, especially here in, in Germany. Hopefully, all of you take away very important information, and hopefully you will come back one day when this is possible. This concludes the event for today. Let me just make a brief announcement of our next event in the speaker series on April 29th. We will have Professor Fiona Cunningham from George Washington University who will talk on Chinese grand strategy, and I hope many of you will join us then. Bye, Cynthia. Bye, everyone, and be well.